1 Peter 5, follow along in your copy of Scripture as I read these first four verses. Peter writes, The elders who are among you I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Brief prayer. Our Father and our God, I pray that from this passage of Scripture, we have a good understanding of what shepherding really involves in troubled times. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So a recent survey was uh, compiled of all the qualities that people expect from their pastor. And here's the list. First of all, and most importantly, he preaches exactly 12 minutes. I've got 11 left. Secondly, he frequently condemns sin but never upsets anyone. Thirdly, he works from 8 a.m. until midnight and is also a janitor. He makes $60 a week, wears good clothes, buys good books, drives a good car, and gives about $80 a week to the poor. He's 28 years of age and has been preaching for 30 years. Not quite sure how that works. He's wonderfully gentle and good-looking. All right, you guys lose on that one. Uh, Has a burning desire to work with teenagers, but is always with the senior citizens. He makes 15 daily calls to church families, visits shut-ins and the hospitalized, evangelizes the unchurched, and is always in the office when needed. Well, obviously there's a little bit of sarcasm in that, a little bit of tongue-in-cheek, but that hyperbole that is exhibited in those, uh, that list has uh, got a measure of accuracy in the minds of some people. But seriously, seriously though, if you were to conduct an informal survey in our, in our region among church-going people and ask them, what are the qualities that they look for in their pastor? I think we would probably meet with a, a wide variety of answers. Some people want in their pastor a CEO who can manage the church enterprise, like a business. Some on the other end of the spectrum look to their pastor to be a a good old boy who will go hunting and fishing with the guys. Others would would appreciate, uh, you know, kind of a hip guy that can relate well to the culture, the modern contemporary culture. Some want their pastor to be sort of a psychologist who can solve all their problems, their psychological, emotional, and so forth problems. Some want their pastor to be just basically a chaplain who listens and gives some comforting advice. In other words, he's a, he's a compassionate caregiver. Some want their pastor to be a cheerleader who pumps them up every Sunday to come into church, and, and they go out pumped for the week ahead. And some just want their pastor to be basically a priest who does all the spiritual stuff for them. People come to church with an array of notions as to what a pastor is supposed to be and is supposed to do. And this can be particularly true in troubled times. When life is difficult, there's pain, there's difficulty and challenges, 
uh, brought on by the world, the culture, society, the economy, or whatever, uh, when those circumstances are difficult, and they can be difficult either for the church as a whole or for an individual member within that church who's going through a crisis. And, and in those troubled times, what people look for in their shepherd, their pastor, can be particularly influenced by the difficulty of the moment. The question is as old as the New Testament church. What's a pastor to do? What's a pastor to be? Well, as you know, we've been emphasizing the last several weeks, the, the, the Apostle Peter is writing this letter, this first letter of his, 1 Peter, to the church going through difficult times and individuals who are facing troubled times. And it's in that context that he writes the passage that we just read, those first four verses, uh, giving counsel, exhortation to the elders who are attending the, tending the flock in this dispersed, troubled congregation. And you might be tempted to say, well, you know, this passage really doesn't have anything to do with me. I mean, this is directed to you, you up there standing behind that pulpit. That's, this is for you. You don't need to bring this to us. Well, I would remind you that Peter wrote this letter to the churches that are scattered abroad, to the people of those, the congregations of those churches that are scattered abroad. And when the, when the elder got, or elders got up to read this letter to their congregation, they read this part to their congregation. Now, what would be the purpose of that? Well, it's not only for the benefit and the challenge and the encouragement and the uh, conviction of the elders. It is for the understanding of the congregation of what is a pastor to be, what is he to do, even in times of trouble. In other words, so that the congregation might have a biblical understanding of the pastoral ministry. And to have that understanding, we need to first of all understand the seriousness of this task. And that, that seriousness is it's, it's indicated by the first uh, couple of words in Paul's, in Paul's or Peter's uh, counsel here. He says at the end of the first line in verse 1, the elders who are among you, I exhort. I exhort. This isn't like, you know, I, you know like Paul had uh, some advice that he offered in 1 Corinthians 7 to the married and to, to those who aren't married and so forth. He offered some advice. He didn't exhort uh, to, to, to be a particular way. Well, Peter realizes the seriousness of this task of shepherding, of, of the ministry, and so he exhorts, he exhorts. Well, the seriousness of this task is also evident by the context of this exhortation. It's not brought out in our English translation, at least not the New King James that I'm using, Maybe it is in your translation, but the first word in this, uh, in this chapter in the Greek is the word therefore. For some reason, the translators left that untranslated, but that's an important word because it's, it's drawing a connection to what has gone before. And what has gone before? Well, just go back a verse, chapter 4, verse 19. 
It says, therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to Him in doing good as to a faithful Creator. So he's talking to those who are suffering according to the will of God, which it always is, and the the exhortation for them to commit their souls to God in continuing to do good even though they are suffering as to a faithful Creator. Therefore, elders, this is what I want you to do. In other words, the, the context of this exhortation is that of suffering sheep. You're, you're to do this, elders, in a congregation of people, in, among a flock of sheep who are suffering even according to the will of God. And why is that important? Why, why that context? And why that connection? Because, as you probably very well know, you who are going through a difficult time or have gone through times of of suffering and difficulty, there is a certain vulnerability that is attached to that suffering. What I mean by that is this. When we're suffering, when, when we're hurting, we are vulnerable to some distorted views about God, about what God is like, what God is doing, why God is doing what He's doing. Sometimes we just, we just want answers to these things, and we're not going to get them. And that, that can so perplex us that it, 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 it challenges our faith. It leaves our faith vulnerable. They're vulnerable to distorted views of God. We, we can be vulnerable to distorted views about our troubles, We can conclude, for example, that I must be going through this suffering, or we as a congregation or the nation or whatever, we can be going through this because of our sin. Well, it may be, but is it necessity? Is it necessarily so? Well, when we're hurting and suffering, we can come to conclusions like that. Or, on the other hand, we can can conclude that these troubles are just the fault of somebody else. We can be vulnerable to distorted views about our troubles. We can be vulnerable to distorted responses to those troubles. What do I do related to this trouble that I'm going through? It's a time of of serious vulnerability. In those times, in troubled times, I think what Peter is communicating here is that sheep need to be shepherded well lest they scatter lest they're ravaged by wolves, lest they're led astray by those who have more appealing voices that, might, that they think might lead them out of the trouble. So the context of suffering is an important context to keep in mind. It gives evidence to the seriousness of this exhortation. Well, the seriousness is also evident by the recipients of the exhortation. Who is it that is to do this work that he's called, calling for in verse 2. He says, to the elders, I exhort the elders. Now, here it would be helpful for us to remind ourselves that the person who is referred to as an elder has two other titles that they're referred to as well, referred to them as well. The word elder is the Greek word presbyteros. You might, you might connect that with uh, presbyterian. Uh, it's a form of church government that is run by elders, uh, essentially, and that's a very simplified thing. But nevertheless, uh, the, eld- the, the term elder emphasizes and expresses the character 
of the man that holds the office, his dignity and his gravity in the work that he's called to do, elder. But the elder is also referred to as an overseer or bishop, as the word is sometimes translated. Again, the Greek word is episkopos, and you might hear that and think of, oh, yeah, that sounds like episcopal, and there's a reason for that as well. But an elder is also an episcopos, a bishop or an overseer, and that expresses the oversight responsibilities of the office. Elder emphasizes and expresses the character of the man. Overseer or bishop expresses the oversight responsibilities of uh, of that office that he holds. And the third term is the word shepherd or pastor. We use that term uh, predominantly in our congregation, pastor. Now, where does that word come from, pastor, by the way? Well, it doesn't come from the Greek. It comes from the Latin. Uh, The Latin word that that is, uh, was used in the Vulgate, Jerome's Vulgate, when he translated from uh, the Greek, or, yeah, from the Greek. Um, that Latin word is, has the basis, the root for our term, English term, pastor. But it means basically shepherd, shepherd, uh, a shepherd or two shepherd. It's either a noun or a verb. There are only three places in the Bible where the term shepherd uh, appears. One of them, or pastor, one of them is in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through, through 13. Ephesians 4, 11 talks about the gifts that God has given to the church. Christ, Christ has given to His church. And in that list is the pastor teacher. The pastor teacher. It's the noun form. And then there are two places where the, uh, the shepherd term is in the verb form, what he is to do. One of them is here in verse 2, shepherd the flock. The other one is in Acts 20, verse 28. In Acts 20, verse 28. And there Paul is uh, exhorting the elders of the church at Ephesus, and he says, "'Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock,' among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, bishops, episcopoi, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. So notice there again the, the, uh, the connecting of those two terms. These are the elders, at the, these three terms. These are the elders at the church of Ephesus who are to oversee the work of the ministry in, that, in, the, in Ephesus, and they are to shepherd the flock. That term shepherd expresses the feeding responsibilities of the office, the feeding responsibilities. And the root of that feeding responsibility goes back to the Apostle Peter. Remember in John 21, when uh, uh, Jesus appears to his disciples on the, on the shore, and then he takes Peter aside, and he puts his arm around Peter. You know, I mean, we can envision this, right? Peter, the one who had denied Jesus. He puts his arm around Peter and says, Peter, do you love me? Well, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Then what, is, what does Jesus tell him to do? Feed my sheep. And the second time, Jesus says, Peter, 
do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Then he says, shepherd my sheep. And the third time, he says to him, Peter, do you love me? He says, well, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Then he says, feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. So Peter is exhorted by the Lord Jesus. Peter, the initial one called to the role of elder, he is to, he is to feed the flock. Shepherding emphasizes that feeding responsibilities of the office. So by, by using these three terms interchangeably here in this particular passage, it emphasizes the, uh, the, the seriousness of this task to which Peter is exhorting these men. A third evidence of the seriousness of the task is the one who's giving the exhortation, the source of the exhortation. Peter describes himself at the end of verse 1 in three ways. He describes himself as a fellow elder, as a personal eyewitness, and as a privileged partaker. Look at those three ideas here. Peter says here, I exhort you, I who am a fellow elder, a fellow elder. As I mentioned, Peter is the first person, the first of the the followers of Christ who is given this role of being an elder. And he was given that calling there in John chapter 21. And he, Peter, was the initial, shall we say, lead elder in the church of Jerusalem. Uh, James eventually became predominant and prominent in the church in Jerusalem as the lead pastor or elder there, it seems. He's the one that conducted that Jerusalem uh, council in Acts chapter 15. But initially, in the church of Jerusalem, everybody looked up to Peter. Everybody looked to Peter. He was the initial lead elder in that church. Therefore, as a fellow elder, the one who's giving this exhortation, Peter's giving this exhortation because he understands the calling that is involved in this office. He understands the gravity of the role and the responsibilities that these elders are to carry out. I'm a fellow elder. And he also identifies himself as a personal witness. He says, I'm a witness of the sufferings of Christ. As you well know, Peter saw firsthand, with his own eyes, what Christ went through. And he saw it from the early stages of Christ's public ministry as one of the first uh, disciples called to, to Jesus to follow him. And Peter is with Jesus all along the way. He saw all of the sufferings that Jesus endured throughout that public ministry. He saw the suffering that Jesus endured when Judas came to him. He saw the suffering that Jesus endured in the Garden of Gethsemane. He saw the suffering that Jesus endured in that mock trial as he stood afar off. He saw that suffering, and he was so, he was so overwhelmed by that suffering that he didn't want to partake of it himself. He didn't want to have that suffering on him, so he denied his master. And he saw the sufferings of Jesus as he hung on that cross. He saw those sufferings. But he saw more than simply the pain and the agony that Jesus endured at the cross. He saw how Jesus responded to it. 
He wrote of that back in chapter 2. Do you remember that? But look, look back a page or two in your Bible to chapter 2 and look at verses 21 and following. Peter writes of Jesus' sufferings. He says, to this you were called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps. What did he see? What did Peter see with his own eyes? He saw that when Jesus was reviled, he didn't revile in return. He committed no sin. There was no deceit found in his mouth. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but instead he committed himself to one who judges righteously, even as he bore our sins in his own body on the cross. He saw the sufferings of Christ, and he saw how Christ responded to those sufferings. So, listen, get the point here. As a, as a personal eyewitness of the sufferings of Christ and how Christ responded to it, Peter, Peter provided a uniquely effective guide to other elders, helping them shepherd their people as they respond to suffering as Christ responded to it. He's a personal eyewitness. And then Peter identifies himself thirdly at the end of verse 1, as a partaker of the glory that will be revealed, a privileged partaker, a privileged partaker. Now think about those three occasions in particular when he was privileged to partake of the glory that will be revealed. I think your mind probably immediately gravitates to the Mount of Transfiguration, as Peter was one of those up there on that mountain, and he saw Jesus transfigured before them and saw Jesus in a glory that he had never seen before, a glory that soon was dissipated, but it was a glory that was a foretaste of the glory to be revealed, a glory that would be shared by those who are Christ all, for all of eternity. Peter had a foretaste of that glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. Well, he also experienced the glory of Christ on the, resurrected, on the day of resurrection, in the resurrected body of Christ. Here is this glorified body. Jesus had a physical body just like every one of us here today, a body that literally died and was placed in a grave, but a body that was raised in a glorious manner, unlike but like this body that we inhabit. And Peter saw that glory of the resurrected body. He was a privileged partaker of it. And he was a partaker, a privileged partaker of the glory that, that was seen when they went out to that Mount of Ascension. And there Peter watches as Jesus is taken up from them into the clouds and is then gone. A privileged partaker. Now, what that did for Peter and what, that is to, what, what, what he intends for that to do for us is to solidify a very important principle. And the principle is this. First comes the cross, then the glory. First the suffering, then the glory. That principle alone can help us tremendously in times of suffering and difficulty. First comes the suffering, and then the glory. Every one of us here today who, who, who knew and loved Bob 
Bob Knapp are suffering today. And, and he himself, in the last couple of weeks especially, suffered terribly. I mean, there's a lot of pain, a great deal of pain. And a couple of times I went to see him in the hospital just after he had gotten some more pain meds and he could hardly keep his eyes open. But he said, it's hardly touching this stuff. It's hardly touching it. Great deal of pain, great deal of suffering. But today, today, there's none of that. Today, there's There's glory. He's absent from the body and he's present with the Lord. First comes the suffering, then the glory. That, that principle is one for us to grasp onto. And Peter, by saying, look, I, I as a fellow elder was a personal eyewitness of the suffering, but also a privileged partaker of the glory. I'm here to tell you that first comes the suffering and then the glory. This will help you, elders. This will help you. So the source of the exhortation helps us understand the seriousness of the task as well. Secondly, in verses 2 and 3, if we're to understand this work, we secondly need to recognize the simplicity of the task to which Peter is exhorting these elders. The simplicity of the task. Now, by simplicity, I don't mean easy. I mean simple as opposed to complex or complicated. In other words, this work of shepherding is not a complex thing. It's not, you know, a lot of the notions of what a pastor is to be, a shepherd is to be, an elder is to be, that we talked about in the introduction, those, those can be some very complex things, complicated things, if you're going to be all of those things to all people. But that's not the, ca- that's not the task. It's much, it's much simpler than that. And the simplicity of this task can be seen in its character, in its character. Look at these two verses, especially verse 2. And what two words show you the character of the task? He says, elders shepherd the flock as overseers. You got these two words, shepherd and overseer. And when you put those two words together, well, when you take them apart, you look at them separately and look at what the character of each of those words involves, and then realize that they both are, are, are applied to the same individual, then you can see the character of the task. A shepherd, that tells you that this is a humble task, a humble task. There aren't any, there aren't any shepherds who exist in that function as proud, arrogant shepherds because of their station in life. Now, they may be arrogant, and there may be some pride in shepherds, but they're not, they're not proud and they're not arrogant because of their exalted station in life, taking care of a bunch of dirty, smelly sheep. No, that, that communicates the humility of the task. It's a humble task. But then overseer communicates a different thing. It communicates the authoritative nature of the task. It's a humble task as a shepherd, but it's an authoritative task as an overseer. And admittedly, many of us in this role of pastoral ministry we, we can tend to 
gravitate to one to one of those or the other. You know, we can we can put so much emphasis on this that we neglect this. We can put so much emphasis on this that we neglect that. But but they need to be held together. They need to be held in tension together. And the character of this task is then seen in that role of a servant leader. Servant leadership. Humble overseer. Shepherd overseer. It's the character of the task. But those, then also we see in this third word in verse 2, the focus of the task. The focus of the task. There's a simple focus, and that is the flock. He says, shepherd the flock of God which is among you. Now, there's a potential, especially in this era in which we live, when there are so many things that could be done in the work of the ministry. And there's so, I, I, I tell you the truth, I have pretty much quit buying books or reading articles that tell me what I ought to be doing in the ministry because there seems to be no end of opinions from experts to make your church grow or be the, be the best CEO in the church you can be or whatever. There are no end to the tasks that are placed upon the shepherds in the world today. You need to be able to do this. You need to be able to do that. You need to be able to do this. Well, wait a minute. I think Peter's got something here when he says to us, shepherd the flock that is among you. Because the reality is that an overemphasis on other kinds of interests can distract from this important responsibility, shepherding the flock. And there can even be, and don't misunderstand what I'm saying here, but there can even be an overemphasis on outreach that distracts from the shepherding of the flock. Here's what I mean by that. I, and again, I talk about the advice that you get, right? I have gotten the advice that says, you must preach an evangel- you must preach evangelistic messages like you're preaching revival preaching every service. Well, if you do that, then you're not going to feed the flock. If every service, every sermon is just a reworked version of John 3.16, you know, maybe taken from this text or that text, if that's all the preaching that, is occur- that occurs, then the flock is going to be a malnourished flock. Maybe some of you have been in churches like that, where that's the that's the emphasis and that's the focus. And, and then you, you, you've been there for a few years and you come away realizing, you know, I haven't really learned much of anything here. I haven't really, I haven't really grown in grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. I've, I've been, in, been subjected to the, 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 in, the effort of evangelizing me every Sunday. And again, please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not saying that there isn't a place in every service potentially for an evangelistic call and and an acknowledgement of the need of the gospel. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that just focusing only on a gospel-preached message every time is going to lead to a malnourished sheep. Focus on feeding the flock, Jesus told Peter. 
Well, the simplicity of this task is also seen in the functions, in its functions. And there are basically two, shepherding and overseeing, shepherding and overseeing. Shepherding the flock, as I mentioned earlier, emphasizes the feeding of the flock, the feeding of the flock. And the meal that the flock receives is the meal of the preaching and the teaching of God's Word. Consider some of these other verses. 1 Timothy 3, verse 2 uh, gives us one of the qualifications for a man who would want to be a bishop, an overseer in a church. Uh, Titus also shares, the same, shares many of the same qualifications in Titus chapter 1, and Paul in Titus 1 says these are the qualifications of an elder. So it's the same, remember, same office, qualifications. One of them is that the bishop, the overseer, the elder, the shepherd needs to be able to teach. He's apt to teach is one of those qualifications. And interestingly, in... Um, Following after the qualifications of the elders, and I think I mentioned this a few weeks ago when we had that message on the deacons, the, the, the qualifications for deacons do not include the ability to teach. Why is that? Because it's not the deacon's job and responsibility to feed the flock, but it is the responsibility of the elder, bishop, shepherd, to feed the flock, 1 Timothy 3.2. In 1 Timothy 4, verse 6, Paul tells Timothy, remember, the pastor, the shepherd, the elder, the bishop of the church in Ephesus, he says to him, if you, instruct the, if you instruct the brethren in these things, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ. You can flip that around, can't you? If you don't, you're going to be a bad minister of Jesus Christ. In chapter 5, verse 17 of 1 Timothy uh, Paul writes, let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. And by the way, you notice there that there is a, an, a, an allowance for and a place for elders who rule well who do not especially labor in the word and doctrine. That's a, for another day. And then 2 Timothy 4.2, again, Paul is writing to the same man, Timothy, pastor, church at Ephesus, and he says to him, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and teaching. This is the task of shepherding the flock, feeding the flock, providing a meal when the flock gathers together to make sure they have something nourishing and healthful for their souls. And what is the goal of all this? What is the goal of this feeding of the flock? Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 4, in that passage that, where he discusses the gifts given to the church, where he says, Jesus gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastor-teachers. Why? For the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect, a complete, mature man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. In other words, the goal is the health of the sheep and therefore the church. Very simple task, 
Not easy, but not complicated. Feed the flock. The other basic function of this task that he calls the elders to fulfill is that of overseeing. You see that in the middle of verse 2. You are to serve as overseers. Serve as overseers. Watching over the flock. And I would suggest, you know, there, there could be many ways in which you apply that, but two things come to mind. One of them is the, the watching over the flock for the potentiality of wolves entering and threatening the flock. That was Paul's emphasis in Acts 20, 28, when he gathered those elders together. And he said, I'm leaving you, but watch, watch, because after my departure, grievous wolves will enter in. Watch for the flock, tend the flock. But there's another, look with me at 1 Timothy chapter 5. There's another application of this oversight responsibility. 1 Timothy chapter 5, and, and look at verse 9. And I don't want to get into an explanation of what exactly Paul is talking about in terms of this ministry. But look what he says in verse 9. He's, remember, he's writing to Timothy. Timothy is the pastor, the shepherd, elder, bishop of the church at, at, at Ephesus. And he says to Timothy, he says, Timothy, do not let a widow, verse 9, do not let a widow under 60 years old be taken into the number, and not unless she's been the wife of one man. And he's talking about the, 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 the widow care ministry of the church in verse 9. And, and then look at verse 11. He says, but he's telling Timothy this, refuse the younger widows for when they have begun to grow wanton against Christ, they desire to marry. Now, again, my interest here is not in, in talking about that ministry to the widows. That's, that, again, is for another day. My point is that Paul is giving this instruction to the pastor, to Timothy, and he says, you are responsible for the oversight of this particular ministry, the caring for the widows. In other words... The oversight responsibility of the elder is not only to watch against the watch for the dangers that might threaten the church, the flock, but also to oversee the ministries that tend to the flock. So the simplicity is seen in the functions of the officer of the task. It's also seen the simplicity in the motivations for the task. Back in our text, in verses 2 and 3, Peter gives a series of not this, but this thing. Not this motivation, but this motivation. Let's look, first of all, at the unworthy motivations. There are some motivations that are unworthy of Christ's shepherds. One of them is a desire for praise. He says, serve as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly. Compulsion. The compulsion here is that I must do such and such, so that I please people, so that they praise me. He's compelled by the desire for praise. A man who is motivated by praise, a desire for praise, here's what he will do. He will please people and use them because he's compelled by a need for their praise. It's an unfit motivation, unworthy motivation. Another one is a desire for profit. 
a, a desire for profit. He says, not for dishonest gain. The man who is motivated by profit, he will fleece people. He will fleece them, and he'll use them like Eli's sons in the Old Testament. Remember that story? And, of course, we, can, we have seen plenty of examples of televangelists and others in that role of elder who have fleeced the people out of a desire for profit. And then the third unworthy motivation is the desire for prominence. Verse 3 says, Neither nor as being lords over those entrusted to you. Prominence. A man who's motivated by a desire for prominence will dominate people, and he'll use them to prove that he is the one who has the power. He is the one who is in authority. Regarding that motivation, commentator D. Edmund Hebert wrote this. He says, An elder should not be the sort of individual who exploits his position of authority to lord over others, always exerting his power, always demanding rather than serving, always insisting on his way, even when he knows he's wrong, always flaunting his position. Those are unworthy motivations. But, Paul, or, but Peter counters those unworthy motivations with the right motivations. Not, not by compulsion, he says, but willingly. That is, with a desire to please the one who has called. The one who has called. Some translations um, say, have, have written in here because of uh, textual variations, not by compulsion, but willingly according to God. Willingly according to God. In other words, it's recognizing that God has called, God has placed into this position. My desire, therefore, is to please Him. And if people aren't pleased in some cases, okay, well, that can happen. My desire and goal is not, the, the, I'm not compelled to please people, because that is not always possible. But my desire is to please God, and those who love God will be pleased. Secondly, a, a godly motivation is eagerness. eagerness, eagerness for the privilege, not for the profit. So not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. What a privilege it is to, to, to uh, fulfill the responsibilities and the, and the uh, obligations of, and the duties of this role. This is a privilege. It's one given by God. And a man properly motivated will be eager for the privilege. And, and, and then thirdly, he will be offering an example rather than being a master. As verse 3 says, neither is being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. The quote I gave earlier continues. Hebert writes, elders are to be examples to their flock of humility, self-sacrifice, love for God, passion in worship, and above all, obedience to Jesus in all things. So we need to understand the seriousness of the task and the simplicity of the task. And then finally, verse 4. We need to appreciate, we need to appreciate the significance of the task. Verse 4 says, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Notice that designation of Jesus, the chief shepherd. 
So the significance of this task is seen in that elders have a significant relationship to Christ. They are under shepherds of the chief shepherd, which tells me that the under shepherd must submit to the authority of the chief shepherd. The under shepherd, listen, furthermore, must reflect the heart of the chief shepherd to his flock. Isn't it interesting that Peter used a designation for Jesus of shepherd, not elder or bishop? Well, both of those could have been appropriate terms for Jesus. I mean, in another place, he speaks of Jesus as being the shepherd and bishop of your soul. But here he doesn't. He emphasizes the shepherding aspect. The chief shepherd is Christ. And, and I think the, 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 the insight that we can get from that is that Christ functioned in just the same way as he calls his under-shepherds to function. Christ came and served to please the Father. He didn't come to please people. Now, people were pleased. Some were. Obviously, a whole bunch weren't. They put him on a cross. But he came to please the Father. And he did so eagerly with no concern for personal gain. Jesus didn't come up, come to the, to, to the Pharisees and say, listen, I'll, I'll speak well of you and I'll tell you what you want if you give me enough. No, he wasn't interested in any personal gain. He came to fulfill the mission that was given by the Father. He came to please the Father, and He came to, with eagerness, without any concern for personal gain. And listen while, Jesus, listen, while Jesus is Lord, and He is, He is the Lord of His church, <laughs> He doesn't lord over His church. He doesn't, he doesn't act as a demagogue over His church. He shepherds it. He describes himself in John 10, after all, as the good shepherd. So this is significant relationship that under-shepherds have to Christ, the chief shepherd. But the significance of this task in verse 4 is also seen in that elders stand to receive a significant reward from Christ, the crown of glory. That doesn't fade away. What is that? You ever wondered, what is this crown of glory? And is it really fair? Is it really fair? I mean, I'm not called to be a shepherd, so I don't get this crown? I, you know, I think to answer that question, we can look at a passage that Paul wrote. Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians 2, very quickly. It won't take you long. But, but it's critical. I think it's critical to understand what Peter is calling for here, what he's, what he's looking, calling for us to look forward to. 1 Peter chapter 2. Look at verse, verses 13. I'm sorry, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. Paul writes this. He says, For this reason we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God, which are in Christ Jesus. 
All right, now notice what Peter or what Paul is saying here. He says, I brought you the word and you received the word and it changed you. It effectively works in you who believe. The word does that. And you became imitators of the churches of God which are in Judah. You, you grew in grace and knowledge of Christ. You grew. Now look at verses 17 through 20. He says, but we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. Therefore, we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again, but Satan hindered us. Now look at verse 19. For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. Do you get what Paul is saying? Paul is saying that crown of rejoicing, that crown of glory that I'm looking forward to at the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming is you, Thessalonians, the sheep, the sheep, the sheep who have been fed and protected and served with whom the shepherd will spend eternity. And honestly, I can't think of anything that would give more joy to a shepherd of a flock, this one included, than reaching eternity, reaching eternity, and seeing face after face that he saw week after week teaching, feeding the flock through the many years of ministry as a shepherd of those people. You, you are the crown of rejoicing. And that's what's at stake. That's what is at stake. The shepherd needs to do his task. So when you think about your expectations of an elder, bishop, pastor, particularly in troubled times, are you looking for a a hero? You're looking for a boss? You're looking for a savior? Or are you looking for a shepherd? Very important that we answer that right. Our Father and our God, I pray that you will bless these thoughts to our hearts today and give us a good understanding of what you expect shepherds to do and to be. And I pray that there would be a faithfulness in the carrying out of that work. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.